Are externals allowed on Krakoa? I know they're technically mutants. Yeah, they're allowed there, or at least the surviving ones are. Surviving? You mean the ones who got through the legacy of Iris and Selene? Oh, no, no, no. Everyone got resurrected from those. I mean the ones Apocalypse didn't sacrifice permanently once they were on Krakoa. I thought Krakoa frowned on killing other mutants. Well, yeah, but sometimes you just really need a bunch of external bones. They're bones? Yeah, to make a magical gate to other worlds so that he could... Conquer it? Install longtime villain Jamie Braddock as its king. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 332 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. In this case, comics' most violent superhero soap opera? Or at least the title that would overall qualify as the most violent superhero soap opera? I feel like this run of X-Force actually isn't all that violent. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't even know that this is the most violent X-Book at this point. It's true, yeah. Uh, God, what would be? I mean, we have X-Men and Uncanny, we have this, we have Excalibur, we have X-Factor, we have Generation X. I mean, they kind of pass the torch on and off, and Onslaught is going to throw a wrench into all of that pretty soon. Mm-hmm. A big sentinel-shaped wrench. I guess X-Men has probably dealt most recently with mass murders. Oh, as far as the Gene Nation stuff, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I guess there are different categories of violence. There's, like, mass murder, and then there's just tearing people apart. Uh, Sabretooth was very violent against Psylocke. He stabbed her so hard in the gut that she had to have bandages put on her shoulders, and only her shoulders and her arms. Well, and there's also the question of violent book versus violent team, like whether we're counting total body count or just body count as a result of the heroes. Oh, or a violent actual physical issue. I mean, if you roll up a comic really tight and poke somebody in the eye, you could do some real damage. If if the issue is violent, that implies that it does so on its own steam. Okay, like it's animated by some sort of uh, terrifying ghost that has very specific tastes in violence. I feel like we're getting immediately off track here. Man, that ghost sucks. Stupid ghost stabbing people in the eye with rolled up comics. Anyway, we're talking about X-Force this week, and they are significantly less extreme and violent than they'd been now that their leader, Cable, has has become less gun-obsessed and more into, you know, general mentorship. In addition, they've moved under the same roof as the X-Men. They're living and working out of the X-Mansion, and so that comes with certain constraints. Also, with their snazzy new purple and yellow uniforms, they're more of a cohesive team than, honestly, they've probably been since the New Mutant days. But a cohesive team rocking at least one secondary color, which means they're keeping their moral options open. Their moral options. Purple? So we've seen some pretty significant shifts in the lineup lately. Who's still around? We do still have a couple characters from the New Mutants, albeit one of them from the latter days thereof. That being Boom Boom. I mean, Boomer. I mean, Meltdown. Anyway, that's Tabitha Smith. Uh, She makes time bombs and just gave herself a makeover and major attitude adjustment. We also have Sunspot, Roberto da Costa. After some very confusing sort of possession by a baddie named Rainfire... Who at this point is heavily implied to have been Roberto from the future, although 
we will learn that that's not the case. It's a whole thing. Anyway, Roberto is stuck in his pitch-black, powered-up form and covered in pouches. I guess the pouches are probably unrelated to Rainfire. How does he keep the pouches from catching fire, since his, his powered-up form is by default, I believe, very, very warm? You know, they're made of asbestos, vibranium, unstable molecules. They're fine. That sounds highly carcinogenic. I mean, if you're already covered in black plasma, I'd imagine that's the least of your worries. Now, alongside them, we've got more of the team who's who's been around since the early X-Force days. Those are Siren, Teresa Cassidy, that's Banshee's daughter. She is deputy leader of the team, and like her father, she sports a sonic scream. We've got Warpath, James Proudstar, who has less hair than he used to, but a much greater number of different powers. Have you noticed that in, in this arc, he's exclusively referred to as Native American, like they never, ever mention that he's Apache? I have noticed that, yeah. I, I don't know if the writer, I assume, is doing all the captions, just assumed that the average reader wouldn't be familiar with specific tribes or what. It's a weird shift, because there was something that had always been very specific before. It's also weird timing, since he just got rid of a lot of the Apache signifiers in his costume when he switched looks, so I don't know, maybe we're reading too much into it, but huh. We've also got Domino, that's Nina Thurman, who has luck powers and is the team's wine mom. Okay, technically, the early X-Force Domino was an imposter, and this one is more early-mid-era X-Force, but, you know, whatever. Still Team Wine Mom. We also have a Morlock, who's been in various X-Books for many, many years, and that is Caliban, who got real big and real dumb for various apocalypse-related and apocalypse-unrelated reasons, and is the team's tracker. Now, this team has had their share of ne nemeses, and one of the most persistent such groups is the Externals. The Externals are a group of immortal mutants who've been running society from behind the scenes throughout history, and, um, we make fun of them a lot, and they deserve it. Good thing they're gonna mostly die in this arc. At least for a little while. They'll die again later. That brings us to X-Force number 52, Bad Girls. It's written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Man, I, I, I got some bones to pick with the art in this issue. Interesting. Tell me of these bones. Well... The bulk of this issue focuses on, or, or, or a substantial chunk of this issue focuses on a team of three women. They're breaking into a facility, they're getting in a fight. And the entire time, they're posing like they're in a swimsuit catalog. And it makes it really hard to follow the action. I, I guess that's true. I mean, if after every punch or kick you throw, you have to look over your shoulder coyly while showing your butt off, that, that would slow things down a little. Like, the way Domino crouches with her legs fully splayed out, like, mid-fight and while sneaking around, is not- it, I just- I, I don't understand some of the choices that were made here. Of course, this is something we see a lot of in the 90s. That's just sort of a de rigueur, is that the, uh, the phrase? Yeah, it's something we still see a lot of, and I'm not fond of it. It may also be especially evident in this issue, like you said, I think because the main characters are all women, which itself is very cool, but also because the antagonist is the Blob, and not just the Blob, but a particularly monstrous version of the Blob, so there's quite a bit of contrast there. There's quite a bit of contrast, and 
The role he plays in panel composition is almost more scenery than interactive character. Like, he's usually taking up the entirety of the panel and the other characters are moving against him as a background or as a surface rather than, than um, you know, the normal way you'd see two characters clashing. And so I think we're seeing much, much more posed characters, you know, as far as everyone else. That said... I do really like the panel composition in that regard and the use of Blob, but we'll get to that. So what's going on in this issue? All right, so Meltdown, Siren, and Domino are breaking into Camp Hayden, Kentucky. What's so special about this place? So this is where Nimrod was originally developed, Nimrod being the Ultra Sentinel who at one point came back from the future and there was something involving a magical fish. It was a whole deal. The fish wasn't magical. Right, that's true. It just ate a magic ring, was it? I think necklace. Anyway, there, there was a magic gemstone involved, and then it turned into an age undreamed of, and, and it was a time. Undreamed of? Anyway, so we saw a number of issues ago in X-Force that X-Force broke into Camp Hayden to hopefully prevent the Nimrod project from starting. Obviously, that didn't go so well, we later found out. Preventing the development of the Nimrod Sentinels is an ongoing theme in, in X-Men, and they are one of the harbingers of coming dark timelines and mutant persecution. They're also partly responsible for the end of the X-Men Australia era. As I recall, a fight with one of them was what prompted a number of those X-Men to jump into the Siege Perilous. Uh, Nimrod was involved with that. Yeah, that was like a Nimrod Master Mold deal. It was very complicated. But... Regardless, we've actually seen Camp Hayden another time. That was in X-Factor number 92, when X-Factor found out that Val Cooper had been working with the government to build Sentinels, and they broke ties with her for quite a while because of that. Damn it, Val. Perpetually damn it, Val. So, this issue is called Bad Girls. As we mentioned, it has three female protagonists. But it's interesting that there's nothing, you know, specific about this mission that would require three women. It's just these were the three members of X-Force who were around and who are qualified. Well, yes and no. Domino specifically put this team together, or at least part of this team together, because she wanted to get Meltdown into the field and observe, you know, what was going on with her and how she was doing after her major, well, Meltdown. As the narrator says, A complicated woman shrouded in secrets. Domino is something of an expert when it comes to young women who are on the edge. And I guess she just brought Siren to be, like, a civilizing influence? She can fly. You need a flyer. That's true. You also need a flyer. And honestly, Siren could use some more page time. She's probably the least developed member of the team, personality-wise. Now, they don't find any sentinels in Camp Hayden. What they do find is the word onslaught painted in ten-foot-tall letters. I really appreciate that every time Onslaught goes anywhere or sends his henchmen to go anywhere, they just, like, freaking tag the place like it's the bottom of a bridge. Fuck's sake, Onslaught. At the same time, I do appreciate someone with a good sense of branding, and hey, Onslaught, well done. I enjoy how disjointed Onslaught is. Like, I know the point of this stuff is to make him look pervasive and mysterious and threatening, but yeah, like you said, it's like he's just running around tagging places and doing disconnected things that don't make a ton of sense. Like, I'm not buying him as a major credible threat right now. Yeah, and as we've said, it is our goal to make Onslaught as a story make more sense. So I'm just going to say right now, 
he's just really trying to set people off balance. He's trying to prevent them from figuring out what his nature is and forming a coherent plan and cooperating by being very confusing. Do you remember the Monty Python uh, sketch, How to Confuse a Cat? I do. Yeah, it's like that. I, I disagree. I think there's actually a simpler explanation. Oh, yeah? He just wants to be cool. Batman well is Onslaught cool? Anyway, like you mentioned, Onslaught himself is not here. Blob is here. And we've seen Blob before, but Blob is different than last time we saw him in X-Factor number 107 when he fought Guido. Since then, his powers have been significantly, significantly souped up. Do you, do you know how that happened? Well, we'll find out that Onslaught tends to soup up the powers of all of his henchmen. And it's interesting how that manifests for Blob, because of course Blob's powers are that he's immovable, to the point where it's a common anti-Blob strategy to just blow up the ground under him. In addition to those powers comes Blob's physicality. He's typically portrayed as very fat and very physically large. So, we've talked about this before, but this issue... It, it, like, his physicality is so much a part of this fight that one of the things I, I, I always go back to is how much I really like that aspect of the character. It tends to be played for for gags in obnoxious and shitty and fatphobic ways, but the idea of a character whose size is proportional to and does reflect their strength and their powers is really cool, and it's something that we don't see a lot in comics. Well, and I like the way the Onslaught power upgrade works with the Blob. Like, he's still got the immobility thing going on, or the unmovability, I keep making that mistake. He's still got that, but his flesh is just so protean and so much more under his control. Like, it just shifts like it's almost uh, a a fluid, and that just gives him so much power and so much versatility, and he's even more unstoppable than he normally is. And like you said, Jay, he's almost more of the background, more of the set in some of these fights. And that's kind of cool. It makes him genuinely imposing. Yeah, it makes him scary in ways that he rarely is. Now, he is here to steal Sentinel tech for his mysterious boss, who we know personally is Onslaught. This is this is the same Sentinel tech that from another base will be missing um, in X-Men 46 with Onslaught on the computer screens. Because again, Onslaught steals stuff and then tags. Yeah, really, he's just a a petty crook, honestly. He's a very powerful petty crook, but yeah, I think he, like, you know, stole some smokes from the corner store last Friday. Just left his name everywhere. God damn it, Onslaught. (sighs) Now, the decisive element in this fight, because the the X-Force characters are pretty outmatched by Blob at this point, is going to be Meltdown. She jams a time bomb into Blob's mouth, and when she finally extracts it, when he he basically surrenders in exchange for her extracting and diffusing it, uh, she blows up two more, rupturing his eardrums and destroying his equilibrium, at which point he falls over. Now, we've seen Meltdown do some pretty fancy stuff with time bombs before, but this is a new one. We have not seen her extract and reabsorb the energy from one of them. Yeah, so it's interesting that along with this new extreme attitude comes some new manifestations of her mutant power. You remarked in the notes that it's less that she's become more aggressive and more that she's become more assertive, and I think that's definitely true. I think it's also that she's more serious. Before, she tended to use her bombs pretty haphazardly and with very little attention to damage, but not exactly ruthlessly, and that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, and the way this scene is done is genuinely tense because 
it really seems for a while like she's actually going to kill the blob, just like murder this helpless opponent who has surrendered. She doesn't even pull the bomb out of his mouth until Domino says please. And so, I don't know, like, I feel like if you're going to have a major attitude change in this direction, this is a great way to follow up on it. Not just to say, hey, my hair is shorter now and I'm more of a jerk, but am I actually going to start killing people? Because, like, the blob was a total misogynistic jackass to the three women earlier, so, you know, I can understand Meltdown being pretty pissed off at him. But even X-Force typically doesn't murder opponents who have surrendered. Well, not since the Liefeld days, anyway. Now, there are some problems that arise with defeating the Blob, the first of which is that he is pretty much immovable. You, you can't really drag him out, especially now. Fortunately for him, he's got backup. Mimic swoops in, and Mimic, um, for those of you who've forgotten, is a guy named Calvin Rankin. He originally showed up in the Silver Age. His deal is he is he may or may not technically be a mutant. He's an on-again, off-again mutant whose powers are, are that he can absorb any mutant power he's around, and he was around the original five X-Men long enough to have a, permanently absorbed all of their power, so he can always fly, he's consistently got access to, to telepathy, telekinesis, etc. We last saw him in X-Force number 46. He disappeared after absorbing Sunspot's power and overloading. Interestingly, when X-Force found him in that storyline— he had left civilization to be alone after his powers were upgraded. Hmm. So, he is able to basically mind-control Blob out of there, um, leaving, leaving our X-Force members as baffled as, as when they arrived. But the bulk of the fight of this arc is going to take place not at Camp Hayden, but in midtown Manhattan, where Sunspot and Caliban have answered a distress call from a man named Gideon. Oh jeez, this guy. So you want to talk a little bit about who this guy is before we describe what happened to him? Freaking Gideon. Freaking Lil Gideon. So Gideon was another Liefeld creation. He is apparently a school friend of Sunspot, despite looking about 30 years older and looking... How do we... How does one describe the glorious appearance of our friend and yours, Gideon? Okay, remember that book Porky Can? No. It had like three, it was, it was spiral bound and had like three sets of, of cards, each of which had a picture of part of an animal. So it was, you know, top part, the, the title was for me in the top part of a porcupine, middle of an iguana, bottom of a toucan. Oh, I see what you're doing here. Gideon kind of looks like he was generated through one of those, but not with animals, more with, you know, really aggressively arbitrary fashion. He's got a green top knot that's roughly knee length. Yeah, he's got like a red tunic and this metal banding around his arms, or maybe he's got metal arms, it's very unclear. He's also immortal, and he murdered Sunspot's dad. Right, this was back when Gideon, who is one of the externals we mentioned earlier, knew that there was a new external around and thought it was Sunspot and recruited him and killed his dad so that Sunspot would like be looking for another father figure slash classmate, I guess. Uh, it turned out it was Cannonball. Well, it turned out maybe it wasn't Cannonball. We'll get to that. But the point is, Gideon's been a jerk to X-Force in general and Sunspot in particular for quite a while. And so for him to ask X-Force for help? Yeah, that's weird. I'm sorry, you, you mentioned Lil Gideon, and now all I can imagine is X-Force, but like Gravity Falls style? Oh god, that would... 
I mean, it would be a really bizarre mashup that wouldn't work at all, but I love it. Remember the episode with the teenagers? I do. It would basically be like that. That brings us to X-Force number 53, Even an External Can Die. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And yeah, uh, Gideon... He called for help a little too late, apparently, because he is thoroughly deceased. He is an ex-Gideon. He's pushing up the Gideon daisies. He's got these rolled-back eyes, a scream-locked mouth, a shriveled-up body, and also terminal fashion sense. And despite being so far gone, Sunspot nonetheless tries to give Gideon, the guy who killed his dad, some solar-powered CPR. And I like the handling of this in the narration. He has lost teammates. Loved ones, his father, his first love, Juliana. Perhaps that is why, despite the fact that Gideon was the cause of his father's death, Sunspot still strives to do everything in his power to save this man's life. But Sunspot is not really feeling anything, and he's wondering if that's due to the sense of detachment that's been inside him since Cable used Ascani philosophy to depossess the Rainfire persona. I don't know about that plot line, but I do like this. I do like the fact that Roberto da Costa, of course, he's going to be conflicted about the death of anyone significant from his past, whether they're good or bad. You mentioned that Gideon's body is kind of desiccated. That's an important clue. It's true. It's true. He's really dehydrated. I mean, he went for a run and he forgot to drink water after, and then he just had a bunch of like coffee and beer and oh, it was bad. Stayed in a hot bath for way too long, just got super pretty. Damn it, Gideon, you've been alive for, like, so many decades and centuries. You should know better. But yeah, this is weird. An external has died. This isn't supposed to happen. We have seen one external die. That was from the legacy virus. But from everything else, they've been able to recover. Yeah, they are functionally immortal. They are at least supposed to be. Now, you mentioned the legacy virus, and we immediately get two more externals showing up and attacking. They think that Sunspot and Caliban have killed Gideon, but they're not quite right. Cruel is, well, I guess Cruel is in normal form. Absalom has the legacy virus. He does, yeah. He's normally got body spikes, and his powers are getting really intense as the legacy virus kills him. He's also just wearing shorts. I assume he uh, was hanging out on a roof when all this happened, brooding. Um, Absalom's less interesting, but let's talk about Cruel. Because, okay, Cruel's a very bad person who has done very bad things, but I so enjoy Cruel as a character. He's a large, muscly purple man in a loincloth, and he's got these... He's got no hair, but he does have these two, like, eight-foot hair braids coming out of a gem on his forehead, and they have giant, like, jagged metal skulls on the end of each braid. To my great disappointment, Loeb has apparently forgotten Cruel's tagline, which is Cruel Rules. Jay, I believe it's pronounced Cruel Rules! Ah, uh, yes, of course. I apologize. Thank you. So, Cruel doesn't have prehensile hair. Like, he just has decided that a good weapon is to put big weights at the end of two braids and, I don't know, use combat headbanging or something? He is a stylish gentleman. He is. I mean, aside from all the murder and oppression, this right here is a way in which Cruel does, in fact, rule. 
Also, this fight kind of rules. Like, I know you weren't a fan of the art in the last issue, but the art in this issue for the fight scene is great. Polina is so good at just showing dynamism and scale with good foreground and background contrast, and all these badass action poses that actually do really work with these detailed city streets as a backdrop. Yeah, the contrast is really, really noteworthy. It totally is. Like, even when the female characters show up, I know that was one of your criticisms, like, they look awesome in this issue as well. And speaking of, Domino and Siren are pulled from their concern about how murdery Meltdown is getting, and Warpath and Shatterstar are pulled from poking each other with sharp things, as Sunspot and Caliban call for backup. Now, Cable is not going to be joining them, at least ostensibly. He is busy fighting Nate Gray in a crossover between Cable and X-Men. Mm, poor guy. That being said, Meltdown is certainly taking enough of the focus herself with a pretty... I'm not sure how to feel uh, about her badass battle cry. Time to make the blisters. I mean, I, I, I guess she's doing that. But before they get to the fight, on the plane, on the pack rat, Meltdown is having her own internal monologue. Sam is an external... Or so they say. Does that mean he can die too? Can't be thinking about that. Sam can look after himself. And I've got to look after me. I appreciate that Loeb remembers Melton's relationship with Cannonball. I kind of wish X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, where Cannonball is these days, remembered. That would be a cool way to add intra-book continuity and also give Sam more traits than just newbie in those books, and it would also make this relationship seem a lot less one-sided if both of them were thinking about it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I kind of wish that X-Men and Uncanny X-Men remembered that Sam has a distinct personality. That too, yeah. But yeah, the way it comes off is that Sam has just forgotten about Tabitha in favor of being so excited to finally be on the X-Men, and that... That's a loss, because I'm not saying they have to stay together forever, characters don't, but to have him just entirely forget about what was a pretty defining relationship for him kind of sucks. Really does. Well, anyway, everybody joins into the big fight, and Shatterstar gives Cruel a sword-based haircut, thus disarming him. Cruel, I hope you rethink this, except you won't have a chance because you're gonna die really soon. Aw. Warpath, meanwhile, decides that he is going to climb the skyscraper... I believe, uh, Rockefeller Center, with his bare hands. Yeah, he is trying to figure out just what's going on, rather than just fighting the two angry, muscly men. I actually kind of like Warpath's power evolution. When he first appeared, and for that matter when his brother John Thunderbird first appeared, their powers were just, like, strong, essentially. So it's kind of cool seeing that get a little more specific and a little more unexpected. Later he'll be able to fly. Faster than the speed of sound, in fact, but not faster than a laser bullet or louder than an atom bomb, as far as I know. Good to be precise about these kinds of things. Judas Priest agrees. Warpath finds Saul, another one of the externals, who was, you know, the old guy. And the captions say that Saul is crucified, but it kind of looks like he's just been slammed into the wall in zombie pose with his arms out. So, he's cruciform then, not necessarily crucified. Uh, neither of which are to be confused with cruciferous. Mmm. Saul. Immortal cauliflower. I'd read that comic. Delicious. But no sooner has Warpath discovered Saul than he, unfortunately, meets up with what left Saul there. He gets whammied by a mysterious off-panel figure in high heels. And the panel of the aftermath of her attack is 
fucking brutal. Like, there's just this big shatter mark in the concrete wall with a splash of blood that then drips down in this big smear to the unconscious warpath below with, like, blood dripping out of his nose. Like, he looks thoroughly, thoroughly injured. Maybe dead. Before that, though, a kind of entertaining accident of the artist that it really looks like she smashes his head into the stylized background effect from the previous panel. Well, you know, I mean, if it's already there, you might as well reuse it, right? And with that, we move on to X-Force number 54, Q&A. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins and Derek Bellman, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, here's the thing. This issue is set up as a usual suspects gag, except instead of there being a bunch of unreliable narrators, it's just different members of X-Force telling different parts of the story to the cops until Charlotte Jones tells them they can all go home. Wait, wasn't wasn't there just one main narrator in Usual Suspects? Wasn't that just Kaiser Sose? It's been a while. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's doubly not like the Usual Suspects. It does have uh, the same kind of cover with all of our X-Force weirdos up in front of uh, like a criminal lineup wall, which is a really fun cover. So, I don't know, I, I kind of like that we go from people being interrogated, talking about the events, and then seeing the events themselves. Like, I think that's kind of fun, but... In Usual Suspects, that was a heist, and this does it with a fight scene. Which do you think works better, or are they just different? I think that the heist works and the fight scene doesn't, really. Is that just because we both love heists? I mean, part of it is because I I deeply, deeply love heists. But part of it is because when when, when the idea is that you're building a story layer by layer like that, in retrospect, you gotta have a story with layers. And this fight doesn't really have them. It doesn't have the kind of complicated, you know, crenellated twists and turns that you'd get from a heist story where you can you can just kind of build up the details. A bunch of stuff happens and there's some kind of ridiculous background. It does it does have something that I really appreciate, which was which is the members of X-Force very earnestly doing their best to explain externals. To a bunch of skeptical, exhausted cops, which I will say is exactly how it feels to be us. (laughs) Oh, God, you're right. Okay, before we get to the actual fight scene and, like, the plot, can we talk about the different characters' responses? Because I think, honestly, that's where this storytelling technique does really work, is we get to see how each of the characters deals with telling authority figures about all of the bullshit that they've been dealing with. And in that regard, I think it's a fun character piece. Right on. So we start with Sunspot. And he's righteously indignant. Like, he's still conflicted about the fact that his mentor slash schoolyard chum slash murderer of his dad has been killed. But this is Roberto da Costa. Roberto da Costa will waste no chance to be very arrogantly furious at people assuming that he's less cool than he is. He is cool. He is rich. He is a badass. Now, we should mention that the reason that they've been dragged in is an investigation into the death of entirely normal, respectable businessman Gideon. I always forget about this, that Gideon being an external and even being a mutant is a secret. Like, he's... I mean, look at him. We, we talked about him. He's this enormous, muscly guy who's bald with a big seafoam green, t- green top knot, and he's wearing, like, this bizarre clashing combat armor all the time. He dresses like a fucking cartoon genie. He does! And yet everybody assumes, oh no, he's just a regular businessman. He's just like a CEO. I, 
I love this. I love the idea of this dude just walking into meeting into into stockholder meetings. It's like if Takashi Six Nine ran Hewlett Packard. What the fuck? Yeah. So so again, it it, it remains completely delightful that X Force members are like, no, no, he's actually an immortal mutant, and the cops are just like, uh huh. Okay. We live in a world where, as far as we know, there are no immortals and there are no mutants of, like, the Marvel Comics variety. And if I saw that motherfucker walking down the street, I'd be like, you know, I didn't think immortals or mutants existed, but that guy is definitely both of those things. Also, a very odd dresser, and I I, I respect it, but I don't understand it. How do you live in Portland? They're going to take your card away. I'm just saying, there are some weirdos in Portland, but I've never seen anyone like Gideon. So if Gideon rode down the street, like, on a unicycle bagpiping... Well, that would be fine. That I would understand. I mean, I would still think he was an immortal mutant, but I would never think of him as a normal, respectable CEO. So anyway, uh, in, in the investigations into Gideon's death, as they, they talk to Sunspot, they also talk to Domino or Try. Yeah, she's just all creepy and silent and confident and just, like, glances meaningfully at the gun uh, on the cop's hip, and they just sort of get creeped out and run away, and Domino's fun. Now, so two other team members are a little more communicative. Boom Boom would like the cops to know that she gives no fucks. Like, no, seriously, she gives no fucks. Why would you ever think that she gives any fucks? And also, fuck you, you asshole. But Cable's great. But Cable's great. Yeah, I think she describes uh, watching him in combat as a reason to get up in the morning. Boom Boom is posturing so hard here, and that fits because, yes, she's getting genuinely, like, troubling as far as her uh, moral compromise, I guess. Like, you know, her uh, her moral compass is is spinning around very fast. But she's still Tabitha Smith, and she still overdoes it whenever she's trying to communicate any aspect of herself, especially how badass or competent she is. Love her so much. I love her so much, too. Siren is slightly more measured. I really like the way Siren's handled in this scene, actually. Like, we've talked about how Siren is a hard character for writers to get a handle on. It's like it's hard to really understand who Siren is, aside from plot elements rather than character elements. Like, you know, she's an alcoholic, for instance. But here we see her fluctuating between being very professional and being extremely worried about the missing warpath and then full of her own righteous indignation. And this fits. She's a character, in a way she reminds me a little of Husk. She cares a great deal about being an effective leader and an effective superhero, but she's also a very emotionally intense person and sometimes those aspects of her conflict. Yeah. Now, I want to get to the last team member a little later. But for now, let's let's talk about, you know, what what actually happened, what the story these these rowdy kids are piecing together for the cops. So Celine showed up. Celine ate Absalom and then cruel. Celine, of course, being the immortal ruler of Nova Roma, which is hanging out in the jungle and seems to be a lost enclave of the Roman Empire, but in reality she just brainwashed a bunch of nearby people to think that that was the case because she liked Roman stuff. But then later it turned out it was actually, actually a lost enclave of the Roman Empire, because comics. Anyway, she's a psychic vampire, and she's sucking out everybody's souls. Right. Um, and she was was killing her way through the externals when Cable appeared. And Celine tried to eat him, but it didn't work. His energy was somehow corrupt. 
I guess because of the techno-organic virus, and I feel like this has been a plot element in a story we've covered before, and I cannot for the life of me remember which one, or if it's a different story I've read that we haven't covered, but I know this happens multiple times in multiple stories. There's a point where it all starts to blur together. There totally is. Also, Celine's kind of blurry. She's, like, traveling around in pillars of smoke and materializing and dematerializing, and it looks really cool. There's this one uh, panel where she's just rising up in this big pillar of shadow and smoke, and she kind of reminds me of Katara rising up in water pillars in Avatar. It's rad. Oh, nice. Now, when she found that she could not actually eat all of Cable's energy, she horribly injured him instead, but it really looks like she just ripped off his shirt. Take a drink. Okay. And she informed X-Factor that not only is she killing her way through the externals, but yeah, they're not going to have to worry about their external member because Sam's not actually an external. Cable somehow faked him dying and coming back, and then she just fucks off. Oh boy, so let's talk about this. Let us unpack the nature of Cannonball being or not being an external. As we know... Early in X-Force, he was run through by Sauron's surprisingly pointy wing and died and then came back. And it turned out he was the newest immortal external, right? Except... Except Selene just says, nah, he's not. And to be fair, the comics have mostly forgotten about that plot point themselves. I think many of the writers agree with us that it's a plot point that doesn't really work for the character. That said... That completely negates Cable's original reason for coming to the present day from the future where he grew up. And it also completely negates Gideon's reason for killing Sunspot's dad when Gideon was looking for the next young external. And I don't know, I kind of like those parts. So I guess you could just rationalize it by saying, A, we already kind of retconned that part of Cable's reason for coming to the past anyway in favor of him seeking out strife and or apocalypse, and B, maybe they were just wrong? I mean, I'm just saying, Gideon, despite his perfect fashion sense, is not entirely infallible. Now, there's a fan theory that I first encountered, um, I think as you did in the comments of Real Gentlemen of Leisure, that I really like, which is that Danny, who was a Valkyrie at the time, inter- intervened to restore Sam to life. Because we never find out what got her kicked out of Asgard, but it would have had to have been around that time, and it neatly resolves both of those continuity questions. It totally does, and uh, credit to Drew in those uh, in that comment section for for making us aware of that one. Uh, I also found out from UncannyXmen.net that there's another fan theory that the externals were killed and Cannonball was de-externaled because Marvel was afraid of getting into trouble with the producers of the Highlander TV show. Since I mean, let's be real, the externals are kind of sort of Highlander ripoffs. Yeah, that has been officially contradicted by Marvel at this point. Like, there's there's no actual evidence of that, and no Marvel editors who will support it. Yeah, Brian Cronin of Comic Book Urban Legends Revealed talked to ex-editor Mark Powers about it, and nope, it was just to close out a Liefeld storyline and give the book a fresh start. And in this era, yeah, that does seem to be a thing. They're giving the book fresh starts. So, going back to uh, Celine's departure... Cable's horribly injured, then Blacksmith shows up, yoinks Cable back into the time stream, and wipes everyone's memory of the last few minutes. Um, they all come to with cops surrounding them and decided to cooperate, except for Warpath, who's MIA. So, we've talked about most of the members of the team talking to the cops. The one member we haven't discussed, other than, again, Warpath, who has disappeared, is Shatterstar. 
Shatterstar doesn't tell the police anything, but they tell him something. They insist that A, he has an existing criminal record, and B, his name is Benjamin. Oh boy, the Benjamin Gavidra storyline. Here we go. Now, this is throwing a major, major wrench into Shatterstar's already shaky self-concept. Miles, you mentioned that back before this big fight, he and Warpath had been sparring at the Xavier School. What you didn't mention is that the reason they were doing that is Shatterstar is really worried that he's losing his head, that he's losing the identity and the ruthlessness that made him an effective fighter to begin with. Yeah, and the captioning even starts to call into doubt his very nature continuity-wise as well as personality-wise. So I guess we do sort of have a bit of that unusual suspect's vibe. It's at least pulling out threads of what we assume is reality, but not ones that have to do with the story at hand. This led me down a dark, dark path in which I ultimately determined that Onslaught is the Kaiser Soze of X-Men, or at least the Professor Xavier in context of Onslaught is the Kaiser Soze of X-Men. Okay, I mean, we know Professor Xavier is a jerk, but I think it's a bit harsh to compare him to Kevin Spacey. <laughs> the character, Miles, the character. Oh, okay. Because, well, he's he's the one who's who's coming up with these, these complicated justifications to obfuscate the fact that he's actually the big bad. And that part, I think, really works. How much it was intended, I don't know. But the idea of Xavier having this internal war between his better and worse angels, or big metal dudes as the case may be, and having that manifest into a very confusing story because he's so psychically powerful and because he keeps undoing the stuff that he does going back and forth in the world, that the world itself manifests his internal conflict, that is actually pretty cool. I really like that. Valid. Now, the externals, for their part, are going to be gone for almost a decade. They are going to come back briefly in a sort of weird timeline situation in 2017. And, of course, they're briefly resurrected then in their Krakoa era. um, But that ends, honestly, about the way this story does. Uh, Surprisingly similar, it's true. So, yeah, no more externals. Cannonball, despite not even being an X-Force character anymore, is now sorta kinda officially not an external, with no official explanation as for how he came back from the dead back in early X-Force. And, uh, here we are. And you, understandably, have questions. Aaron asks via email, Did Nazi Captain Britain hide his Naziness from the rest of the Captain Britain Corps, or was the Corps just okay with having a Nazi in its ranks? They were okay with it, which, um, yeah, the, the Captain Britain Corps was kind of lawful neutral when it came to its own members, which is probably a big part of why it ultimately imploded. This is why cultural relativism can sometimes not go so well. But I also get why, if in the multiverse you have a Nazi universe, that having a compatible Captain Britain to at least have some influence over that Nazi universe would be appealing to somebody like Saturnine, whose job it is to keep the multiverse from getting too fucked up. Also, but maybe bomb it from orbit. I mean, she did that once way back in Alan Moore's Captain Britain run. I think that was Earth-238 that became the Twisted World and she just sort of annihilated? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so I guess in the eyes of Saturnine, Nazi Captain Britain may suck, but Jim Jaspers is worse. Jim Jaspers is a threat to the coherence of the multiverse. 
That said, I kind of feel like the rest of the Captain Britain Corps just should have repeatedly punched Nazi Captain Britain. It's a moral obligation. Oh yeah, it should have just been a continual thing. Like, he shows up, someone punches him. Right? We know that Captain Britons do love to punch. It's true, especially each other. So Piper Skalka asks on Twitter, Dupe, what's his deal? Do you enjoy him? Oh jeez, fucking dupe. Uh, okay, let's start with what Dupe's deal is, as much as one can define Dupe's deal. So, the basics, I guess. Dupe looks kind of like a less gross version of Slimer from Ghostbusters, and he speaks his own language. Less gross, but lumpier. Uh, depending on the depiction of Slimer, yeah. Dupe's language is actually just a simple substitution cipher, where each letter corresponds to a different letter, so you can decipher it if you're patient, kind of like the new Krakoan language. I'm not patient, so I've, I've never done so. I'm sure there are web pages that have taken care of that already, but I was also too lazy to look for them. Allegedly, he was created by the U.S. government as a weapon in the Cold War and helped bring down communism. But mostly, Dupe was known for being the videographer for the Ecstatics. The Ecstatics being the reality television team of mutants uh, written by Peter Milligan and drawn by Mike Allred, both creators I, I really enjoy, um, during the 2000s, I believe. Toward the end of that, when Dupe's brain exploded into multiple parts for reasons I don't recall, the Ecstatics fought the Avengers uh, for each of those parts in a spiritual sequel to the Avengers-Defenders War from the early 70s, which was actually really, really fun. That's a super enjoyable story. He sort of became a more central character in Peter Milligan's X-Men run, and then again in Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men. Yeah, and he had his own miniseries, All New Dupe, about uh, his metafictional homeworld called Marginalia, which is a cool concept. Great name. Right? But I personally like Dupe best as a baffling background character, just as an example of the Marvel Universe being bizarre and incomprehensible. I feel like the more you explain Dupe, the less funny he is. I'm not saying he's bad as a character, I just enjoy him when he's less of one. I lack strong feelings about dupe. That's reasonable. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters or concepts. Not dupe so far. I don't know how we do a dupe voice. But let's hear for now from the angry Claremontian narrator. What the hell have you done, Nicholas Hall? What in all the heavens could possibly have possessed you to pick yet another fight with Eli Terrio. Are you two trying to make things as difficult as possible? Not for yourselves, no, just for everyone stuck cleaning up the inevitable mess. Do you know how much paperwork that's going to involve? Do you have any idea? Do you? <clears throat> and uh, from there, the microphone goes to completely normal and thoroughly respectable businessman Gideon. Thank you all for coming to the Q2 2021 Business Corp All-Staff Meeting. I hope you all got your online DoorDash certificates. No coffee and donuts through Zoom, am I right? Uh, everyone mute your microphones, and please... Wait, what are you wearing? Look, I know these aren't normal times, but I expect professional attire even when we're working from home. Marion, your outfit colors are all coordinated. I've tried to be a good corporate manager and lead by example, and I would like to point out my bright red tunic and gleaming gold metal arms were carefully chosen to set off my bright green gloves. That is how we show we care about our presentation. 
You... Look, I don't care if you went to college with some X-Men critics I've never heard of. Next time, I expect at least three clashing colors in that Zoom window. And Justin, are you kidding me? I know this is your first board meeting, but you only get one chance to make a first impression. With that expertly cut, reasonable hairstyle, you don't look professional at all. I'm not saying you have to have the same mostly shaved head and long seafoam top knot as me, but please put some effort into your presentation. At least get a mullet or shave lightning bolts into the side of your head. Alright, we only have 117 minutes left, so let's get to these financials. We have an agenda to follow, and we are, after all, perfectly normal and respectable business people. Even working from our living rooms, am I right? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode along with original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, ad-free, and wearing respectable business attire, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next time, the newly incognito Dark Beast goes on his first X-mission to the Train of Danger. Or the Tranger, if you will. Which I will.